You're listening to Tavis Smiley, and I am glad about it. We've arrived in uh, our final hour of today's program. Uh, not a bad show for a Monday. Not a bad show for any day. Uh, two great hours. That last hour was fire. Um, I learned so much in that hour, as I hope you did. I say all the time that every day I leave the studio, I always walk out a little bit smarter than I came in. And uh, I thank Professor Matthew Berry Johnson for just downloading us with the backstory for why there are, in fact, so many wrongful convictions of black men in this country. I thank him for his research, for his work, his witness, and that uh, uh, empowering conversation. Uh, in this last hour today, we'll talk uh, politics. Um, a lot of politics to talk about in this hour. We'll talk SCOTUS, we'll talk Trump, we'll talk Biden, and a great deal more with attorney Elizabeth Booker Houston. The Supreme Court seems skeptical of arguments uh, to kick Trump off of state ballots. Uh, you saw that a couple of days ago. The justices uh, actually across the ideological spectrum questioned several aspects of a ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court. It seemed clear to me, as I said earlier in today's program in our first hour, that um, they are going to rule whenever they rule um, in a way that will keep Donald Trump on all 50 state ballots. That's my take. We'll see what Elizabeth thinks about that. Uh, and today is the deadline for Donald Trump to appeal uh, a federal appellate court's ruling that he does not have immunity from prosecution for his role in the January 6th insurrection. I'll have Miles look this up. I've been on the air for a couple hours. I don't know whether he's filed that yet, but we fully expect that if he hasn't, in just a matter of moments uh, or minutes, Donald Trump's lawyers will, in fact, file uh, the paperwork for that stay uh, uh, while he appeals this decision, which, again, just delays uh, this trial restarting. This is the trial with Judge Tanya Chutkin, the black judge, uh, the, the, the sister judge in Washington. Uh, this is that case that's been uh, stayed at the moment, given this uh, fellow appellate decision that he does not have immunity. But they said that they would give him until Monday, Donald Trump, that is, to, uh, to, to get his behind down to the Supreme Court, his lawyers and file their paperwork. And we will see what happens next. So they're going to end up the Supreme Court, that is, dealing with two cases. One, uh, they heard oral arguments for last week about whether or not he can be kicked off of state ballots. The other, ultimately, about whether he has immunity from the January 6th prosecution uh, because he was a sitting president, which I think is hogwash. Uh, the federal appellate court felt that it was hogwash, but we'll see what the Supreme Court has to say about it once Donald Trump files those papers today, if he hasn't already done so. Uh, Elizabeth Booker Houston is a lawyer, social scientist, stand-up comedian, and political content creator. Um, how do you weave all that together, Elizabeth? Uh, I have no idea because I'm also a mom and a wife, so and a professor. Um, so <laughs> from day to day, just whatever I can focus on, I try to focus on it. Yeah, no. I mean, all all, joke, all jokes aside, it, it, I think there's 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 something uh, I think here that might be an instructive and informative for our audience. I certainly wrestle with this every day, um, and I believe that we as human beings really can accomplish a great deal more. We're in February; it's Black History Month, and so we're celebrating accomplishments all month long of African-Americans to making this um, experiment in democracy what it is. Of course, we do black history around here every day. But there is something to all the things that you are doing. And so my first question is, um, what have you learned about compartmentalization? Because I believe, again, that most of us are capable of doing a great deal more than we do if we learn better how to compartmentalize. That's my read. What's your take on it? Um, yeah, I mean, once I learned to compartmentalize, that is definitely when... I started to see a shift and I was able to take on so many things. I'll be honest with you. The sad reason that I learned to departmentalize is uh, it was really um, kicked off by 
my brother was uh, sadly murdered in 2017, mm. um, and we have still not had justice for him. And that was right after I had finished law school. And so I'm sitting there finishing my law program. I'd also got my master's in public health. I was all excited to come to D.C., make big change. And then my family's just sitting in the midst of grief and injustice and seeing firsthand how unjust the justice system can be. And so it's like I... I'm sitting here, uh, you know, starting this new career where I'm supposed to be all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed mm -hmm. and having to find a way to move forward. So had to do a lot of compartmentalization. <laughs> yep. Tell me more. Since you went there, um, uh, I hope you don't mind talking about it. If you do, I'll, I'll back up. Uh, but since you referenced it, tell me about, about your brother. Yeah, my brother, uh, his name is Jonathan Booker. Um, he, oh my gosh, he was just such a delight, sweetest kindest person. Um, everybody loved him. He was very popular. We were from Memphis, Tennessee originally, and he was a very popular skateboarder. And then he had to have a spinal fusion as an adult for a very, very severe scoliosis. And he started getting more into photography and videography because there was a while where he couldn't skateboard anymore. And so he got into doing all of that. And he got very well known around town for just being this amazing photographer and videographer. And then um, when he was 25 years old, on December 3rd, 2017, he was leaving an event where he was brought in to take photos, walking to his car, and there was, you know, a couple of guys in a white Hummer who had beef with two guys standing by an infinity, and they were shooting at each other, and unfortunately, they got my brother instead. Um, but he was a joy. <laughs> mm. What 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 is it like? Um, we were just talking. You heard me, probably heard me say at the top of this hour, we were just talking with a professor out of John Jay College in New York, uh, Matthew Barry Johnson. Uh, about wrongful convictions. Um, and in your case, it's not about a wrongful conviction. It's about getting a conviction at all. When we come forward, uh, I, I want to I hear that part of the story. What's it like having lost a brother to murder uh, in 2017? And again, you're not the only person in this country, sadly, who has this story, but I want to hear yours since I'm talking to you. But there's so many people who either have relatives who are wrongfully convicted, as we just discussed for the hour, or people who have loved ones who've been murdered and they never find a suspect. They never arrest anybody. That case is never closed. Um, and not that finding the culprit uh, allows you to necessarily close on the loss of a loved one. I say all the time, we don't close on the loss of loved ones like we close on a house. It's, it's not the same. Um, but it, may, it might bring some peace uh, if the person who killed your brother uh, could, in fact, uh, be brought to justice. What is it like navigating a life where you've lost a loved one and nobody is helping you find the person who did it. We'll talk about that and a great deal more when we come forward with Elizabeth Booker Houston on Tavis Month. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. It does indeed with attorney Elizabeth Booker Houston, who is a lawyer, social scientist, stand-up comedian, political content creator, mom, wife, and professor. Don't tell me uh, that you can't get more done <laughs> in the 24 hours. Somebody once told me uh, years ago that uh, we all get the same 24 hours every day. The question is, how are you going to use it? Uh, I don't get any more time any day of the week than you do. You don't get any more time than I do. The question is, how are you using the 24 hours that you are given? Uh, put another way, it ain't about the work you do. It's about the work you get done. Not the work you do, but the work you get done. And uh, we were just talking to Elizabeth about uh, what she's learned 
about compartmentalizing, and I can write a book about compartmentalizing, but um, the better you learn to do that, the more you can accomplish on, on any given day. And we ain't got a single day to waste around here, certainly as black folk trying to make uh, contributions to our community, uh, to our country, uh, certainly to our families and the things that uh, we believe in. I, I digress on that point for now. Um, Elizabeth was, was was sharing with us um, a very painful story, but I think, again, it can be instructive and informative for those who share um, the uh, the journey that she is on, and that is what it's like losing a loved one uh, to murder, uh, and the police and nobody else seems to be able to find the culprit. And so you are mourning the loss of your loved one on the one hand, but on the other hand, the person, the assailant, is never in fact brought to justice. What's it like waking up every day for years knowing that your brother was murdered and to date, no one's been held accountable for that, Elizabeth? It is one of the hardest. It, it, it really is the hardest thing I've ever dealt with in my life. Um, I remember saying that at the time that after everything happened, I, I just, it hurt so bad that I just knew I was going to die because it hurt so bad. So the fact that years later I'm, I'm living my life and doing all of this is kind of amazing because I could not picture it in that moment. Um, one thing about my brother's case is they do have the two suspects who were in the white Hummer, they did find them. They did identify them. And I say they, but really it was my 19 year old niece who did it because she did a simple Facebook search and was able to find that white Hummer that was involved in another incident and told the police. And they didn't, they just don't have enough evidence um, that they say that they can possibly bring charges and convict them for murder. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about wrongful convictions mm -hmm. and, um, the inequity in the justice system and how systemic racism plays into that. I always remind people that it also affects victims in this case, because what happened is police saw my brother, a young black man dead on the street and just thought he didn't matter. And so they collected no evidence. They tried to do nothing to investigate, did not secure the scene to the point that my own mother got a metal detector off of Amazon and went back and found the bullet casings later herself that my, my dad went around to the local businesses to try to find footage, all these things that the police should have done. Mm. But because of their bias, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And actually even told, told my dad as he's standing there at the scene and my brother's still on the ground. Um, well, we got to check his body for, for, for uh, gang tattoos. Mind you, my brother had not one tattoo on any inch of his body. He actually hated tattoos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and was wearing a short sleeve button down shirt that I purchased. And it was very clear he did not have any tattoos, but just things like that, that happened all throughout the, you know, right after he was murdered and then all throughout the investigation. And so it just painted the entire thing. So I always remind people, it's not just about, you know, what they always try to say, the criminals for all intents and purposes. My brother was the perfect victim. He had no history of anything well loved, didn't really drink, do drugs, nothing. It doesn't matter, and, and that kind of circles around to my platform and, and how I got to what I do because I have taken a huge stance against respectability politics because I always say it will not save us. Mm. Yep. When you say respectability, I'm, I want to get back to your mom in just a second, so just put a pin in that. I'm, I'm going back to your mom in a second about that metal detector. I heard <laughs> that, so hold that for a second. Um, but when you say respectability politics, in this instance, in this moment, you mean what by that? The fact that my brother was not wearing sagging pants and was wearing a nice button down shirt and some Michael Kors, you know, shoes, mm -hmm. some nice shoes. And, you know, it, it, 
it doesn't really matter. They they always try to pick out little things like that that's all about, well, if you make yourself more respectable, if you pull your pants up, if you dress a certain way, if you talk a certain way, if you act a certain way, well, then you have nothing to worry about. And that's not the case. We're seeing that time and time again that it doesn't matter. At the root of it, it's racism. Mm-hmm. And no, nothing, nothing in respectability politics is going to overcome that. Yep. Tell me more about the work you've done in that regard to push back on that notion of respectability politics. <laughs> so it's, this gets into how I got into the comedy as well. Um, right. Folks who are familiar with my platform, but maybe folks who are not so familiar into hearing me talk right now on your show might be surprised to find when they go on my page, I cuss a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say exactly what I think and how I feel. It is, uh, it's like getting, it's very much like getting your, your political updates and your news and legal case breakdowns, but in the form of like, I don't know, deaf comedy jam or something. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I said, you know, I want to find another way to deliver this information to people. And why, why does it have to be a professor using, you know, yeah, and, and I am a professor by day, but why do I always have to put that hat on it? I don't always have to sit here and use all the big words and the jargon and all of that. Let me make this information accessible to people. Let me make it fun mm-hmm. for people to understand. And so when I call, you know, a Fifth Circuit judge a dry and seasoned chicken breast and talk about how I hate his decision, mm-hmm. <laughs> it catches people's attention. So, mm-hmm. you know. I was reading an article the other day, and I, I, I said, to, I, matter of fact, I said a few actually a few weeks ago, actually, and I said to my producers, and we've been kicking it around, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I am going to do a show, and I'm, so I'm glad you went there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot because I know you can handle it, and you're a comedian, so I know you can handle it, uh, not, to mention, <laughs> not to mention a professor, but I'm going to do a show here in the not too distant future about the issue you just raised, about cussing, and, mm-hmm. the, and I'm going to spend an hour just talking about what's up with all the cussing. And, and and the conversation is going to be built around this article I was reading, and it was, it was actually fascinating. This article was about the benefits, believe it or not, the benefits and the value that can come along with freeing yourself and cussing. That's what the article was about. So it got my attention. The flip side of that is that everybody is cussing. And I don't know, I don't know that that is, as my grandmother might say, I don't know that that is the answer to the prayer. Is cussing the only way we can communicate these days? President Biden the other day in his press conference, I know he was mad about that one line in that report. They called him basically old and feeble and a bad memory. But the president's dropping cuss words in his press conference. Senators and other people are telling people to go F yourself. I mean, in our body politic, in our public discourse, college professors, elected officials, everybody is cussing. So I'm asking you, Elizabeth, since you since you went there and boldly <laughs> pronounced that you cuss a lot, what's up with all the cussing these days? Well, it is an outlet. It is definitely, you know, it's just, you ever been a little kid and, you know, your parents make you mad and you know you're not supposed to say it, so you might go in the room and shut the door and you whisper the F word real hard to let it all out? Yes, yes, <laughs> That's yes. That's what it's like. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like that, but on the on the flip side of that, it, it it's... I like to be very creative with my insults for that reason, because sure. I'm like, well, I don't want to just resort to profanity. So I do and as a comedian. I feel like I should constantly be working on my craft, sure. but um, I think it's just, it's honest. It's just very honest. And I think people are really drawn to it right now because we've had so much dishonesty, so much of people saying pretty words mm-hmm. on TV in one way, but they're slick meaning something else. So 
to hear somebody just let out their raw, real emotions, it's like, you know what, at least I know, at least I know they're being honest right now, especially in the world of politics. There's such a lack of honesty. Yep. I, I wonder, just playing devil's advocate here, I wonder to what extent you think that all the cussing uh, is certainly in our, in our politics. And when people are, you know, cussing out reporters and cussing out citizens, for that matter, telling people to go F themselves, to what extent does that add to the incivility that we already have in our public discourse? It may be freeing on the one hand, but one could argue that it adds to the incivility. You know, I don't know if it does, and that just might make me a very cynical person. I don't know if it adds to it. It might mm-hmm. make it more obvious okay. to a lot of folks, mm-hmm. but being in D.C. and um, I, I, when I came in here after law school, I, I, I was a presidential fa- management fellow under the, the Trump administration, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really, it's always been uncivil. And yeah. I think I think that this is just another way that people are are finally seeing it, um, and and that's what it comes back to with the respectability politics is like, does it really matter if people are saying things in a nice, pretty, flowery way if they're going to stab you in the back anyway? Yeah. Um, tell me right quick here, watching my time, and I've got three things I said I was going to ask you about. I ain't forgot. Trust and believe. I'm going back to your mama and that metal detector. I ain't forgot that yet. Um, <laughs> but but tell me tell me the, 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 the is there is there some funny here about being a presidential fellow? in the Trump era? <laughs> um, it was strange. I will tell you a very quick story in that I went to the White House for one of my trainings one day, and I was standing in line to go through the checkpoint, and there was an older gentleman in front, and we started talking, and he found out I was a PMF, and he mm. just took my hand and said, oh, that's beautiful. I-, I need you to stay. We need you to hold on. The sun will shine again one day. Don't worry. It's a dark time right now, but it will get better. And I said, oh, thank you, sir. What do you do? And he said, I rescue hostages. And I was just like, oh. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, that 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 story about says it all. That that, that about says that it all. That says all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me uh, let me circle back to you, to your mother. Uh, and this is not funny. That was funny. This isn't. But I I was fascinated by what you said. Um, and and this is the story of black folk in America. That so often we just have to assign ourselves uh, to do what others will not do. It should not be that way when it comes to justice. The police ought to do the job that they are hired to do, to protect and to serve. They ought to do their jobs. But but, but tell me about your mother. Your brother is murdered in 2017 in mm-hmm. Memphis. The cops are not doing their job uh, to bring the assailants to justice. Your mama went out and bought a metal detector? She did. And I do want to add into this story that my brother and I, our father is black, but our mother is white. Okay. And I think that that is kind of important to the story, too, because this is one of those examples of where proximity to whiteness is not going to save you mm-hmm. <laughs> in every case. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, my brother is a black man. I'm a black woman. That's what people see on the street. They see my mother and her black husband. And so she was not treated well either, um, you know, being tied to all you know with all of us as a family um and obviously she does not deal with the same issues that you would uh, that she would as a black woman she still has white privilege as a white woman um but i think it's just important to note that that even with all of that it was not going to overcome the systemic injustice that is at the basis of everything and so yes she ordered a metal detector off of amazon and went out and found metal ca- uh, bullet casings and uh, sent it off to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation when the Memphis Police Department did not. My Lord. <laughs> that, that is that is quite a story of what people have to do. Um, 
Man. So since we're talking about the Memphis Police Department, um, this is, you know, you, you can probably see where I'm going here. This, this is the same police department where these officers killed Tyree Nichols. Uh, mm-hmm. And we know that story all too well. So, you know, you're, you know, you hail from Memphis. You live in D.C. now. But but given what happened to your brother or what didn't happen, I should say, when in terms of them not you know arresting anybody or, or charging anybody in this case, um, given what happened to your brother, given what we saw happen to Tyree Nichols, what, what's what's your read on the Memphis Police Department? Oh, we've known they've been corrupt. <laughs> Everybody in Memphis. I don't think that's any kind of secret among any of my fellow Memphians listening right now. I know you're nodding your heads like, yep, we've we've known the Memphis Police Department has been a corrupt mess. Um, that is nothing new. And and I think that I don't even know what else to say beyond that. But we just it, it it's the corruption is real and it is deep. Yeah. And, and and what do you think the source of that corruption is? I mean, I mean, put it another way. Does it happen because Memphis is a black city? Am I missing something? Why is this department so corrupt? I think it's a combination of Memphis being a black city as well as the way, the place Memphis stands in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard people say all the time growing up that, you know, Dr. King was assassinated mm-hmm. on April 4th, 1968 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis and the city never recovered. Mm-hmm. And that almost seems to be the case. Um, we just have a lot of deep, deep wounds in Memphis that you will not find in a lot of other cities throughout the country. Yeah. You know, there are a couple and of it's si- also targeted by the, I mean, really, to be honest, too, there's the disenfranchisement by the Republican state legislature in Tennessee. That's also the case. They are very intentional in how they keep Memphis impoverished no, and is- how they allocate funding and how they do all of that. And that adds to it. Yeah, speaking of the legislature, this is the home of those two Justins, is it not? Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? I said, I said speaking of Memphis, Tennessee, this is Tennessee. This is the home of those two Justins that we all know so well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Justin Jones and Pearson. Oh, my gosh. They are wonderful. <laughs> yeah. No, it just goes to show you how they, again, disenfranchisement is real. And those two brothers uh, came to national prominence when they stood and fought back against their expulsion from the Tennessee uh, state legislature. So that's the Memphis. That's the Tennessee that we're talking about uh, at the moment uh, from which uh, Elizabeth Booker Houston hails. When we come forward now, we're going to put our expertise to work now that I understand the backstory. I never know where these things are going to go. I mean, I'm just I'm following the guests. But these conversations are always instructive, informative, inspiring and empowering and just revealing Uh, As I say all the time, each of us doesn't just have a story. Each of us is a story. And so often uh, I find that the best part of this program is is understanding the backstory of the people I'm talking about or talking to, even before I get to why they're booked to come on the program. So we'll do that part when we come forward, get to why she was booked. Uh, We'll talk about uh, a number of Supreme Court cases. Uh, We'll talk about Donald Trump. We'll talk about Joe Biden, a few other things with attorney Elizabeth Booker Houston when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Elizabeth Booker Houston, lawyer, social scientist, stand-up comedian, uh, political content creator, mother, wife, professor. Uh, she does it all. I'm delighted to have her on the program in this hour. Um, I, I want to talk now about some issues, uh, why I really wanted to have you on. Uh, but I enjoyed uh, understanding the backstory uh, a little bit uh, a little bit better. Uh, we'll talk in a moment about these two Supreme Court cases that Trump, uh, we just checked a moment ago, uh, at least at this moment. Trump, has, his lawyers have not filed their paperwork yet uh, for this stay while they appeal this decision by the appellate court. Uh, which found last week that uh, Donald Trump does not have immunity from prosecution for January 6th. So we're still waiting on his um, his filing. That has not happened, at least at this moment. Uh, may happen before I go off the air. Uh, and if not, um, it 
is certainly going to happen today because he wants to kick this can a little further down the road. So the Supreme Court will end up having to decide whether or not they're going to take that case. Uh, and they already heard it uh, arguments uh, last week about uh, whether or not he should be kicked off of ballots. So those are two issues right there we'll get um, Elizabeth take on a little bit later in this hour. But I, I want to start with two other cases that you are particularly uh, passionate about. Uh, we're spending so much time talking about the ballot case and the immunity case uh, that we uh, you know, sometimes lose sight of the other cases that the Supreme Court is hearing, this conservative court is hearing uh, that impact our lives as well. Let me start with these other two cases again that you are again are are, are keeping your eye on. One is um, the Chevron uh, precedent case. I'll let you explain that uh, and and tell us why you are watching it so closely, Elizabeth. Yes. So, for folks who don't know, Chevron is a a very it's a, it's precedent which we we keep hearing about that time and again with the Supreme Court looking at precedent again. Um, it's a forty year old case that governs the way that administrative agencies are able to have power, authority, jurisdiction. So that's executive agencies like CDC, NIH, DOJ, all of those agencies. And the whole reason these agencies exist is that Congress acknowledged the fact that they can't answer every question because they're not experts in things like science and medicine and finding, you know, all of these things that the agencies handle. So what they do is through statutes, they give a limited amount of authority to the agencies to handle the issues themselves by hiring experts. So the Chevron case came about because they were trying to figure out, well, what happens when the statute is ambiguous or it's silent on an issue and then the agency goes forward with a decision? And so the Supreme Court decided, well, if the agency makes a reasonable interpretation, then it's fine, and the judges need to defer to the agency again because the judges are not experts, right? It's going to be all of the folks who have been hired to to handle this very specific kind of work. So um, what has happened is there's a case. They had oral argument last month, um, and they have pretty much asked point-blank period to overturn Chevron and take away the ability for agencies to have that sort of deference, and then it's essentially up to judges, Congress, whoever, to make all of these huge decisions, which is a very scary thing to think about in the wake of COVID-19, in the wake of the pandemic, where you have disinformation going around. Um, You know, it has huge impacts for all different sectors, but especially public health. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty scary um, because of everything going on with Trump and the Colorado ballot and all that. I feel Mm -hmm. like it kind of slid under the radar, but you know, we're already seeing judges kind of chip away at that. There was a, there's a Fifth Circuit case that is in front of the Supreme Court right now as well, where they decided that the FDA didn't have the authority to say that mifepristone, which is the abortion pill, was safe and effective. Mm. <laughs> and that, that, um, that, the, that the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, that they yeah. do not have the authority to say whether or not the pill is safe. Yes, because they, according to the judges, didn't do enough research. Mm. The, the judges, who are not the doctors and pharmacists that decided mm-hmm. that, and that is what folks are very afraid of if we no longer have at least something in place of Chevron, um, some some sort of way to make it clear that judges shouldn't just be deciding issues of science and medicine and whatever else from the bench. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's the, that's the point you're trying to get us to focus in on in terms of keeping our eye on the ball. There are two different cases, mm-hmm. one the abortion pill, one Chevron, but the point I hear you making is that these are decisions that are being made by judges 
which is doing a couple of things. One, it's giving them more power and other agencies less power, number one. But number two, it really does put these courts in the everybody wants to deny it and act stupid about it. But we know these courts are political. And as I hear it, mm-hmm. these decisions allow the court one to uh, extract, if you will, or certainly, certainly uh, gain more power for themselves over decision making. But it also, to my mind, sounds like it makes the courts even more political. If I'm misreading either of those points, disabuse me of that notion. You are not misreading at all. You are right on the money. And I, I like to say that this is not an anti-conservative, or this, excuse me, this is not a conservative decision mm-hmm. with trying to overturn Chevron. It is a very anti-intellectual one. And I make that distinction because conservative justices were the ones who have been very supportive of Chevron in the past. And Justice Antonin Scalia, who we all know Justice Neil Gorsuch replaced on the bench, and who was also very conservative, is actually known as the father of administrative law. He drafted most of the laws to give administrative agencies this sort of authority, knowing that they have the expertise to handle these issues in a way that Congress and judges do not. And so that's a conservative justice there. So I, I always like to make that distinction because I feel like a lot of people focus on conservative versus liberal or Republican versus Democrat. But what we're really seeing in a lot of these issues is a really like harsh movement toward anti-intellectualism, anti-science, all of that. And it's, it's a huge deviation even from conservative groups. Mm-hmm. There is there's a, there's an irony in what you just said. Let me see if I can make this plain. If I can make it clear to you, um, there's an irony again in what what I heard you just say. And and the irony for me is simply this: there was a point in time I, I was I was a, attending an event this weekend here in L.A. Uh, hosted by the Langston Bar Association. I was honored at their event. By the way, thank you, Langston, for the honor this weekend. But in my congratulations, thank you. But in, in my in my talk in in my talk this weekend. Uh, I, I made the point that in this democracy, and I call it an experiment in democracy, we have a Madisonian framework for democracy, but we ain't quite there yet. So I still call it an experiment in democracy. But in this in this democratic experiment, I said to the audience, if you take black folk out of the democratic experiment, it just falls flat. If you take out our contributions, it falls flat. And that includes mm-hmm. our contributions in the law. And I mean Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston, a long list of brilliant black lawyers by the time, as I did on Saturday night, I could call their names. The point is that we've arrived where we are now because of because of and through amendment, uh, interposition, nullification, and certainly protest. But that's where we are in this particular moment right now, even with a democracy that is fragile, not what it ought to be, but it's better than what it used to be because of our engagement. My, my point is that so often black folk, when we wouldn't get respect or couldn't get respect anywhere else, we've had to go to the courts. The courts have not always been on our side. But we had to go to the courts for relief when we couldn't get it in the political process. So we've used the courts quite well over the years and forced that institution of government, the judicial branch, to do right by black people. We've used that system quite well. Here's the irony. In this particular moment, I see, to your brilliant point, conservatives using our system of jurisprudence, using that judiciary, that branch of government in all kinds of ways to advance the political ends and aims that matter to them because they can't get it done politically. So they're using the court system to advance their particular agenda. That's my read of the irony of this moment when we come forward. I want to hear what Elizabeth Booker Houston has to say and whether she thinks I'm right or wrong about that. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. 
Elizabeth Booker Houston, we were taught in our government classes and our civics classes that the legislative branch makes the laws. They write the laws. Uh, the executive branch signs the laws and the judicial branch interprets the laws as we were taught in our civics classes, our government classes back in the day. Um, what what do you make of the ways in which conservatives are now using the courts essentially um, to enact the kind of public policy that they want? I think it's extremely frightening. And the hardest part about it is we don't have really any precedent for this. We are still a relatively young country. The U.S. Constitution has been criticized many times for being outdated, for the fact that we haven't updated it as we should. And there's just been so many gaps that have not been addressed. And I think this is one of them of what, what happens when this great theory of, oh, if we have these three branches, that'll be enough to keep away corruption. That'll be enough to keep one party from wielding its authority. But we're seeing that we, we've seen how it's played out in reality, right? We've seen it with the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. We saw it specifically with overturning Roe versus Wade, which I could talk endlessly about the the way the Dobbs decision that overturned that makes zero sense mm-hmm. um, le- legally. Um, but yeah, it's 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 nice in theory. In practice, it's not really working out that way. Yeah. So the Supreme Court that we've been talking about for the last few minutes is whether it wants uh, to or not. Uh, going to be smack dab in the middle of politics uh, this time around. We know uh, days ago they heard uh, oral arguments in the case uh, about Colorado, but there's also Maine and other states who want to take him off of their ballots, Trump that is, uh, for the November election. So that's a case they've already heard oral arguments on. We're waiting on that decision. Again, my read and everybody I've talked to, their read is that the skeptical questions asked by the judges, both pointed by Democrats and Republicans, make it clear to me that Trump is going to remain on all 50 state ballots. Uh, there's also the case, again, that Donald Trump has to file his paperwork today, but it's likely the Supreme Court will take up a case uh, about immunity and whether or not the federal appellate court was right uh, last week that he does not have immunity from January 6th prosecution. Let me take them one at a time. Um, What's your read of how uh, they, in their questions last week, uh, expressed a little bit of skepticism about the argument uh, made by Colorado that he should be kicked off or kept off of certain ballots in this country? I don't even think it was a little skepticism. I think it was a lot. And I shared that skepticism, not because I want that man on the ballot, Mm -hmm. um, but because... It kind of goes back to what I was just saying. Our Constitution has not been written in such a way to address everything we need it to. And I also don't see how Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could at all bar him from being on the ballot. I I also agree with the justices who were expressing the unintended consequences that could happen the other way, right, where states will find a reason to then exclude the Democratic Mm -hmm. candidate and how that can happen and and just open an entire floodgate. So I remember when the Colorado case came down, I think it was within just like, I don't know, maybe a day or so, a commenter on my page asked, what do you think? And I said, I don't think this means anything. I think this is going to be a lot of theater for him. Um, But at the end of the day, I do think that the Supreme Court is probably, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's unanimous, unanimously decide that Mm -hmm. no, Colorado cannot bar him from the ballot. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Elizabeth Booker Houston, we'll get to the other case and get her thoughts on that before we wrap this conversation and this show today, the immunity case regarding Mr. Trump. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, 
This is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. More of Elizabeth Booker Houston coming your way right now, at least for the last three minutes that I have uh, in this hour. So we talked about the Supreme Court in the uh, in the ballot case, and I think um, you agree with everybody I've talked to uh, that uh, they're going to find a way to keep them on all these ballots, uh, and I don't think that's the wrong decision. I've said many times, I think if you want to beat him, beat him at the ballot box. If he's the presumptive nominee, so be it. Beat him at the ballot box. But I think trying to keep him off of state ballots before he's been found guilty of anything um, is a problem. It just adds uh, to this narrative that already exists uh, that he's advancing, that they're out to get me. And so what about uh, due process, presumption of innocence, and fundamental fairness? Find him guilty in a court of law. Uh, beat him at the ballot box. But I don't think taking him off of ballots is the right approach um, for this election. And so I think the Supreme Court is going to agree with us. I think you're right. It probably will be, uh, I expect, a uh, unanimous decision in that regard. I think you're probably right about that. Which leads us finally to the immunity case. Uh, Again, I just checked uh, a moment ago. He has not as yet filed, um, but um, he will before the day is over. His lawyers, Donald Trump's lawyers, will file the paperwork they need to file uh, for this stay while they um, move uh, to appeal this decision by the fellow appellate court the other day that he does not have immunity from uh, prosecution for his role in January the 6th. Now, I think the Supreme Court is clearly going to rule. I think they'll rule unanimous, as you said, Elizabeth, on his being on all the ballots. That's going to happen. But I also Mm -hmm. think, and it may not be unanimous, but I also think they are going to um, uh, uphold ultimately, assuming they take the case, and I think they will, they're going to uphold this fellow appellate uh, decision that he is not immune from prosecution. That's my read. What do you think? I agree. I I had to laugh at some of his attorney's arguments, and, you know, bless them, they tried. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think it goes back to what the district judge said. And what, did, what was it that they said, that uh, that being president for a time doesn't guarantee you a, a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free card? And mm-hmm. that's, that's what he was going for. Um, the arguments were just far too tenuous. I, <laughs> I, I like how they tried to say that Oh well, if if you don't give him immunity, there will be a chilling effect on presidencies going forward, and no president will ever make any decision whatsoever, as if making a decision as the president about I don't know geopolitical matters or something of that nature is the same as inciting an insurrection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I fully expect if if they take up the case, I, I I imagine they they would, and if Trump gets his gets his filing in, yes, I absolutely think that the Supreme Court will say that no, Trump does not have presidential immunity. We shall see. Um, she is lawyer, social scientist, stand-up comedian, political content creator, mother, wife, professor. She is Elizabeth Booker Houston, who I've been honored to have had on this program for the hour. Elizabeth, thanks for your insights. Good to have you on. All the best to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. My great honor. Just like that, three hours is gone. We are back here tomorrow, Lord willing. To do it all over again. Uh, Until then, thanks for tuning in to Tavis Smiley. And as always, keep the faith.